good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Now we come to the, you're in a think tank here, so now comes the serious part of the day. Um, I was going to start by saying it's been an interesting week in politics when Tony said, is it weird, really? And uh, I suppose it has. But now we're going to leave that part of the week behind and talk about something quite serious. Tony came to me some months ago uh, saying that he wanted to talk about this topic because it was something he felt that when, uh, when he was uh, Prime Minister they perhaps should have considered more seriously. He came to us, I guess, because he knew we were interested in the issue. In fact, what year was this published? In 2012, we published by Simon here, Future Submarine Projects Should Raise Periscope for Another Look. And I suppose that's sort of what Tony's going to talk about. So, um, obviously, uh, it's been a, a weird and interesting week. What, the way this is going to work is Tony will give his uh, presentation, and uh, then this will all disappear. Simon and Tony will sit up here. Simon will. Um, Simon is a research fellow here and our research manager, and I think we know who Tony is. Uh, so, <laughs> then uh, Simon will question Tony about a few issues, and then uh, I will uh, hand it over to everybody else. The uh, I will not take questions on anything else other than submarines. So, so now you know. So please welcome Tony Abbott. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a thrill to be here. This is my maiden visit to the Centre for Independent Studies new and wonderful premises, and I hope uh, uh, there'll be many more visits in the months and years ahead. Uh, as Greg said, uh, this is a speech that I have been wanting to make for some time. Uh, it's a speech which uh, arises out of uh, my time in government as Prime Minister, uh, as you know, uh, we discovered back in uh, late 2013 uh, that uh, very little uh, decision-making had taken place about future submarines, even though uh, each year that goes by uh, is a year, effectively, for the locusts to eat. Um, I thought it was very important, uh, as the Prime Minister, to get cracking on this, and we did. And we did. I also thought it was very important to try to ensure that as far as was possible under the circumstances, we did not repeat uh, the experience of the Collins. Um, now, I fear that uh, that's exactly what we are now doing. So, here we go. Keeping the country safe is the first duty of government and should be the constant concern of those with responsibility for our well-being. I'm proud that the Abbott government successfully stopped uncontrolled people flows into our country that in different circumstances could have become an existential threat. I'm pleased that we swiftly rose to the challenge of Islamist terrorism with more airport security, more powers to detain terror suspects, new terrorist defences, more resources for police and intelligence, <coughs> and a strong military commitment to destroying the death cult in the Middle East. And I'm pleased that the Turnbull government has maintained these policies. But I worry that a decade or so hence, maybe sooner, Australia might face a security crisis in our region, 
and find that governments of yesterday and today have left their successors with inadequate means to deal with it. When a Russian naval task force appeared to our north at the time of the Brisbane G20, I was told that neither of our two deployed submarines could shadow it. They simply couldn't get there in time. It was a stark reminder of the limitations of a strategic deterrent comprising just six conventional submarines, of which two are in deep maintenance, two are in training, and with only two available at any one time, and limited by an underwater cruising speed of just 10 knots. If the world were becoming more secure, and if our allies were becoming more dominant, perhaps that wouldn't matter very much. This must be hoped for, and it should be worked towards, but it can't be taken for granted. Government's job is to plan for the worst, as well as to work for the best. We will be judged by history, as well as by our contemporaries, and at least where national security is concerned, we have to think and prepare for the very long term indeed. Defence capabilities cannot be summoned up overnight, as Australia discovered in 1942, when we had to send whirlaways against zeros before Spitfires and Mustangs could be brought into theatre. That's why it's good that the Turnbull government is seeing through the process that my government put in train to select the next submarine for the Royal Australian Navy. After years of procrastination, we desperately needed a government that didn't shirk decisions about what our Navy needs to safeguard national security. I fear, though, that the right outcome from the submarine competitive evaluation process was not to pick the best of the three bids, but to reassess what we were asking for. As things stand, if all goes well, the first of the new subs will take seven years to design, seven years to build, and perhaps two further years to bring into service. If everything goes to plan, and it very rarely does in naval procurement, the absolute soonest, the absolute soonest we could get the first of our new subs is the early 2030s to replace the Collins-class subs that were originally supposed to start leaving service in the mid-2020s. The Collins was designed in the 1980s, built in the 1990s, and then extensively modified and rebuilt in the noughties so that what was a very good sub on its day could much more reliably take to sea. As things stand, the Collins will need to be upgraded and modernised yet again while we plan for its replacement. Now, the whole point of the next submarine acquisition was to avoid the problems of the Collins, to find the submarine that could be brought swiftly into service with the least possible modifications. But what we've done so far risks an exact repetition. We've based our proposed sub on an existing design, but one that will need to be so extensively reworked that it's effectively quite a different submarine. And our intention, of course, is to build it entirely in Australia. Now, although surface ships can be cost-effectively produced here, if only on a continuous build basis, the primary object of defence procurement has to be the most effective armed forces, not domestic job creation. We don't build our jet fighters here, for instance, although we do build parts for them 
So why insist on a local build, especially if there's a big cost penalty? A one-off Australian design is precisely what we wanted to avoid, but it's exactly what we now face because of our insistence on a submarine that, as well as being large and long-range, was also conventionally powered. The competitive evaluation process conclusively shows that there is no such thing currently in existence. All the submarines on which the bids were based are excellent for their country's needs, but none, it seems, for ours. The Japanese sub lacked range, the German sub lacked size, and the French sub lacked conventional power. But instead of changing what we wanted, we've decided again to bring an orphan submarine into being. Instead of taking a small Swedish submarine designed for the Baltic and seeking to double its size and range to make it suitable for the Pacific, as with the Collins, this time we're proposing to take a French nuclear submarine and completely redesign it to work with conventional propulsion. This is so much more than the naval version of putting a four-cylinder engine into an eight-cylinder car because almost everything inside a nuclear-powered submarine assumes unlimited power. The resulting sub will have less power, less range, less speed, less capability than the existing submarine on which it's based, and it will come into service about a decade later and will be optimal at a time when strategic circumstances are changing against us. Hence the basic question, why should we spend years designing a sub that's inferior to one that we could potentially have now? It's worth noting that Australia has not made a formal decision against acquiring nuclear-powered submarines, so much as studiously avoided even asking the question. This was true of my government, like its predecessors, because in hindsight, we may have overestimated Japan's capacity to mount a bid and expected more than was reasonable of a submarine partnership virtually starting from scratch. But now that the competitive evaluation process has established that there's no conventional submarine to be had anytime soon, this is a debate we should no longer avoid, especially as the strategic balance is shifting even faster now than last year's defence white paper anticipated. Now, I'm not saying that we must go nuclear, but surely we should at least consider the option before the opportunity is lost for another several decades. The French-based design is hardly begun, let alone finalised. No contract to build has been signed and won't be for years. This is because it's a completely new sub, inspired by, rather than based on the existing nuclear model, that needs to be redesigned from scratch rather than simply modified to take a different engine. So there is still a chance for further thought on this. There may even be a duty to consider Plan B should the design process be further delayed or should regional tensions show little sign of abating. Our region is building more and bigger submarines. Indonesia has two, with three more coming. Singapore has four, with four more coming. Vietnam has six and Korea has 14. 
Japan has 19 very advanced conventional subs. India has two ballistic missile subs, one nuclear attack sub, and 13 conventional subs, with six more coming. The Russian Pacific Fleet reportedly has five ballistic missile subs, 10 nuclear-powered attack subs, and eight conventional subs, and then there's China. With four ballistic missile subs, five nuclear-powered attack subs, and over 50 conventional subs, with more and more coming all the time. Our new subs are supposed to be regionally superior, including, presumably, to the sharply increasing numbers of nuclear-powered attack submarines that are based in our region. And armed with the best US combat system, they should be regionally superior. But they still have to be in the right place, at the right time, and a conventional sub takes at least a fortnight to go from Australia to the South China Sea, through which passes more than 50% of our trade. In other words, the regional submarine competition is vastly, vastly more challenging than it was when we last made a decision to go with a conventionally powered sub back in the 1980s. Since then, both the United States and Britain have phased out their own diesel-electric submarines, presumably because there was nothing really needing to be done that nuclear subs or perhaps unmanned underwater vehicles couldn't do as well. Within the defence community, it's sometimes said that our conventional subs complement the US capabilities because their ability to switch off their diesels and run on battery alone allows them to carry out, carry out closer undetected surveillance. And yes, this is an important niche role, but not a submarine's main one, which is to inflict massive damage on an enemy's ability to wage war. I stress, I do not want to interrupt the process of acquiring new submarines, given that it had languished for so long. The design process with DCNS should continue, and so should the build if that remains our fully considered assessment of what's best. But parallel with that, we should rethink what we want our subs to do and what they might be up against in a changing threat environment and explore nuclear-powered options while our committed costs are only in the hundreds of millions. In an increasingly uncertain and competitive strategic environment, can we afford to lack a more robust sovereign or semi-sovereign capacity to deter and resist a sophisticated adversary. And it might be very hard to do that without subs that can range far and fast throughout our region. Conventional subs need to surface frequently to recharge their batteries. They need to refuel every 70 days and they can only briefly maintain a top speed of about 20 knots. Nuclear-powered submarines, on the other hand, can stay submerged as long as the crew can endure, never have to refuel, and can travel at nearly 40 knots. In the Abbott government's discussions about getting the best possible submarine for Australia as quickly as possible, we more or less assumed that our currently limited nuclear engineering capacity precluded that option. Creating a nuclear industry to service subs here would take a decade, perhaps more, 
yet might turn out to be a lesser challenge than designing and building a new class of submarine almost from scratch. Within the 15 plus years that it will take to get even the first of our new conventional sites into service, we could develop a nuclear servicing capability. And if we were to buy or lease a US submarine, it could initially be supported at the American bases in Guam and Hawaii. In the 1960s, we relatively swiftly developed a civilian nuclear capacity, mainly for medicine, centered on the Lucas Heights facility in Sydney. So it can be done if the will is there. And not more robustly challenging, the nuclear no-go mindset is probably the biggest regret I have from my time as PM. Now, the first question would be whether the US would provide us with their nuclear-powered subs. The US already provides Australia with its most advanced aircraft and tanks and its most sophisticated torpedo weapon system. The US has previously provided Britain with its most sensitive nuclear submarine technology. There are said to be safety concerns about a country newly operating nuclear-powered subs, but these could be allayed by seconding personnel from more experienced navies. And a much more capable Australian submarine fleet, strong enough to be a game-changer in any regional maritime conflict, would certainly help to address US concerns about free-riding on the Alliance. We have nothing to lose from starting a discussion on this issue with our allies and friends, Britain and France, as well as primarily with the US. Then there's the issue of bipartisan support for a nuclear-powered submarine. In my experience, Labor has tried to avoid playing politics with national security. If a strong national security case were to be made for nuclear-powered submarines, I am confident that at least under the present Labor leadership, it would get a fair hearing. Labor has actually been stronger than the government on the assertion of freedom of navigation rights in the South China Sea. Naturally enough, Labor is proud of its national security credentials and especially of its record under John Curtin and Ben Chifley and Bob Hawke. Former Prime Minister Hawke has long advocated a bigger nuclear industry for Australia and the South Australian Labor government under Premier Jay Weatherill would like to develop new industries to supplement the uranium mine at Roxby Downs. So why not have a nuclear submarine servicing facility in that state and the industries that would inevitably spin off? In any event, we'll never know what Labor's attitude might be without the public debate, which I hope might now start. And finally, there's the question of cost. Because of the engineering requirements, nuclear submarines are invariably more expensive to build and to operate than conventional ones. On the other hand, even, say, nine nuclear-powered submarines could more than do the work of 12 conventional boats. Much would depend upon the deal that the US might give to a close ally offering even closer interoperability and integration with American forces. But we won't know until we ask. Yet more burden sharing seems to be exactly what the new US administration wants. 
Now, we should never forget that our capacity to defend ourselves in 10, 20, or 30 years' time depends critically on decisions made now. This is the area where our duty to our successors is most acute. This is the responsibility that the present owes to the future, not to compromise the nation's defences a decade hence by short-sightedness now. Like everyone, I hope that our country is never challenged. I hope that our submarines never have to fight. But the stronger we are, the more likely it is that we will live our lives in comparative peace. And short-term politics should never constrain what's needed for our national security. And on this subject, at least, we should be big enough to take the long view. So, ladies and gentlemen, friends, thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to say something like this for many months, and Greg, I appreciate the chance to do so, and Simon Cowan, I appreciate the insights and the inspiration that your paper gave, and perhaps it's a discussion that should have taken off more back in 2012, but if something's worth doing, it's worth doing late. Look, um, my job here is to ask a few leading questions and, and try and put to use again some of the uh, knowledge that I acquired for the 2012 report. Um, first of all, uh, Mr. Abbott, thank you very much for coming here and for sharing what is quite a detailed policy view. I think it's uh, really important to encourage as much of this sort of policy development as we can have. So, uh, as I said, thank you very much for coming and, and for sharing your views with us today. Well, thanks, Simon. Well, I think we're now officially off the record and uh, unrecorded for the purposes of the public, are we? So, no, we're... Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, well, I'll be careful what I say then. Uh, but, but, you know, isn't it interesting that uh, he, here is someone, admittedly only a former Prime Minister, but someone trying to talk about something which is critically important uh, for our long-term future as a nation, uh, and it's not nearly as significant uh, to the people who shape our national conversation um, than whether person X or person Y uh, currently has his or her nose ahead in the latest leadership boo-ha-ha-ha uh, in Canberra. And I mean... Thank God for bodies like the Centre for Independent Studies. Thank God for a handful of serious journalists who would still like to focus on the things that really matter. Absolutely. So let's let's get down to the business of this. I mean, um, no doubt there are people here who are relatively familiar with defence and, and the role for submarines in particular, but I'm sure that some of our friends and supporters are not. Um, can you just basically take us through why Australia would be interested in acquiring a nuclear submarine option and, and sort of what is the thinking behind the need for submarines in Australia altogether? Okay, well, I, I stress that I'm not a defence expert. Um, I just want the best for our country and that means that if you are a senior politician, having an acute interest in the subject is not necessarily profound and long-standing expertise. Uh, why do we need submarines? We need submarines because we are a maritime nation uh, and because we exist in an unstable and uncertain world. Uh, and much as we might like uh, everyone to share our values, much as we might like everyone uh, to uh, have a live and let, let live approach, 
we can't be confident that that will be the case. Particularly, we can't be confident that that will be the case uh, for the next 30, 40 or 50 years in which the next generation of submarines will be effective. So uh, if we are to have submarines, and I believe we must, uh, they might as well be subs that do the job. Uh, there's no point having submarines that are outclassed by the competition. Um, it's like sending second grade out to play for Australia. There's just no point. Uh, we wouldn't get, um, we wouldn't send uh, 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 the, the Hawk jet trainer uh, out to do aerial combat uh, with an F-16. Uh, so if we are up against F-16s and their equivalent, we need something that's at least as good. Uh, and likewise, when it comes uh, uh, to naval weapon systems, our weapon systems, our platforms have got to be at least as good as those that we might possibly come up against. And as we can see, uh, there is a bit of a naval arms race on in our area. Uh, it's not necessarily something that we want to focus on here, but it's happening. Um, why don't we get into some of the challenges for a, a nuclear submarine option for Australia? One of the big ones, I think, is the stigma that exists against nuclear energy in particular. Uh, there's been a number of polls over a number of years that have shown that you know, the public opposition to anything with the word nuclear in it is, is relatively strong. When you couple that with the intense support for defence manufacturing in South Australia, at the last election, for example, there were poll results that found that 85% of voters in Sturt and 90% of voters in Hindmarsh very strongly favoured a local build for the subs. With that specific political pressure on there, how realistic is that that Australia could adopt a nuclear submarine built overseas? Well, I, I absolutely accept that in South Australia particularly, uh, there has been an almost mystical significance invested in the naval shipbuilding of one sort or another. Absolutely accept that. Um, but I believe that most Australians, uh, when asked to choose between the most effective weapon system for our armed forces uh, and a domestic build, if it's not possible to have both, will say that we want the most effective weapon systems for our armed forces. And let's face it, while there has been this uh, uh, particular uh, fascination in South Australia with naval shipbuilding, um, we don't have the same view uh, as to, uh, as to jet, jet fighter aircraft. Uh, I think the Mirage back in the 1960s was in part assembled uh, in Australia, but it certainly wasn't manufactured more or less from scratch here. Um, the last uh, significant military aircraft, I think the Caribou might have been manufactured here. Um, but apart from that, I think uh, we've got to go back to the Wirraway, which wasn't exactly a stunning success for an Australian designed and built uh, uh, weapon system. Uh, the weaknesses of the existing submarine options were well known, I think, you know, within the defence community, certainly by 2009 when the sub-project got into the Defence White Paper. And, and it seems to me as an outsider that the process that Defence put forward for this acquisition was designed to lead to the outcome that it did. Defence wanted a bespoke, largely Australian manufactured submarine and in the end they got there. Um, 
Now, you took a lot of heat over in, in your prime ministership over this, particularly when you were talking to Japan about the possibility of a partnership there. Mm. Um, given all the heat that you took over this, uh, why didn't we go down and look at other options in 2014? What's changed now? Well, what, what's changed is that we actually have the results of the competitive evaluation process. Um, it's true that when the Abbott government first focused on this in late 2013 and early 2014, uh, I thought that, that um, a modest refinement of the Japanese Tolyu class cut uh, was the uh, most achievable and most effective uh, proposition for us. Um, the Japanese take their uh, naval security extremely seriously. Um, they exist in a tense part of the world. Uh, their submarines are aren't there for show. Their submarines are there to defend the Japanese against the Chinese and Russian nuclear submarines. So uh, you've got to assume that the Japanese sub is the real deal. Um, we suspected that it may lack range, uh, but we assumed uh, that this would be something that uh, with their well-known uh, engineering strength, the Japanese uh, could address. Now, uh, that was the path we were going down. Then, for a whole host of reasons, uh, we decided that it would be best if there were indeed uh, some kind of a competitive process to maximise value for money, etc. Uh, make sure we weren't neglecting other options. Um, and clearly, based on the briefings that I subsequently received on the competitive evaluation process, the French bid was the best bid, clearly. Um, but, but, uh, what emerged from that process was that there was no conventional option available anytime soon, none. Uh, either the Japanese uh, hadn't given us uh, their best bid, um, or we had to spend a very, very long time indeed um, modifying a French nuclear submarine uh, or effectively starting from scratch with a small German submarine, as we had earlier with the uh, Swedish submarine. So that's what's changed. We now know a hell of a lot more than we did uh, back in late 2013, early 2014. And when your knowledge changes, uh, your uh, actions should change to reflect the changed circumstances, to, to reflect what you now know. And on that point, I suppose, I mean, you've acknowledged the future submarine project has not been particularly well managed. I mean, the, the Labor government did very little to 2013 to progress this at all. Um, you know, it's seven or so years behind schedule, which is one of the reasons why we've got this expensive capability gap. Uh, and it will cost billions to keep the Collins running to, to meet that gap. Um, given that the decision was finally made, 14 months ago, and work has been progressing. I'm not, I'm not saying stop, I'm saying continue, uh, but I'm advocating a plan B. I'm advocating a parallel process so that uh, when the design process with the French comes to an end in uh, six or seven or eight years' time, or whatever, however long it takes, uh, either then or, or, or previously, 
uh, there may be something else that we might decide to do. And you don't think that that would create an additional delay that would further? I think the French, I think the French process should go ahead full steam ahead, but I think there should be a parallel process take place uh, alongside. Uh, one of the big challenges that, that came up in my work in particular was the reluctance of the US to transfer this information. I mean, they passed the information on to the UK in 1959, but 59 was a very different world to what we have now. Um, there was a process with the Canadians in the 80s that proved to be quite controversial. Um, you're confident, and not in, uh, indeed so was I, that the US would transfer this information if it came down to it. But wouldn't the dependence that this creates on the US, particularly for support for, say, maintenance or construction, wouldn't that create a dependence on the US that would compromise our sovereignty? Well, we're dependent on the US anyway. Uh, so uh, I don't think there's much point suddenly getting sniffy about a dependence which has long existed, has long existed and will continue long to exist. Um, we depended upon the US that for the continued uh, full operation of our joint strike fighters. Uh, we depended on them for the continued full operation of our uh, F-18s. Uh, we depended upon them for our tanks. We depended upon them, depended upon them for the existing submarines' weapons system. So uh, this idea that we would somehow be more dependent than we are now, I think, is, is false. There would be an extension of the dependency, um, but uh, I just think that's inevitable. Uh, uh, one last question for me, and I'll turn it over to the floor because I'm sure everyone else is interested as well. Um, Australia, as you've acknowledged, has very little in the way of nuclear infrastructure. We certainly have no expertise or experience in nuclear-powered defence technology. Um, there is no workforce or skill set to draw on um, here. We would be looking at creating a crew and a workforce and a capability more or less from scratch um, how much of a challenge would that be and, and is that something we think that we can achieve inside of a decade? Well, we've recruit, recruited quite a lot of submariners from the Royal Navy over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, many of them have extensive experience on nuclear submarines. Uh, I've spoken to some of them uh, and no doubt that process could continue. Uh, I'm sure we could recruit uh, uh, from the US Navy uh, as well. Uh, and look, uh, if we want to do something, uh, we can do it. We didn't have a uh, civilian nuclear capacity in this country until the 1960s and we created one. And uh, while we say there's no nuclear industry here, there are probably people in this room who benefited from the medical uh, nuclear industry. Uh, every significant hospital has a department of nuclear medicine. <coughs> our diagnoses, uh, uh, our um, you know, scanning technology and so on, uh, absolutely depends these days upon upon nuclear medicine. So we can certainly do it. Uh, it's just a question of making the decision that it is worth doing. Now, you asked earlier, Simon, about, about public attitudes. Sure, uh, we've, we appear to have this uh, nuclear uh, bogey, but nevertheless, um, as always, if it's clearly and carefully explained to people, uh, if it's clear to them that we're not talking about nuclear weapons, we're talking about nuclear propulsion, um, we're talking about something which has operated safely 
around the world now for some 60 years. Thank you.